Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Hey, welcome to BJJ Mental Models Episode 3. I'm Steve Kwan. I'm Matt Kwan. Thanks again for listening, and today we're going to talk about bodies. Spooky. (laughs) So in episode one, we talked about alignment and alignment is basically a unifying theory of what jujitsu is. In episode two, we talked about the core mechanics of jujitsu. So frames, levers, and wedges. And the reason why they tie together is because once you understand what alignment is, you need to know, well, how do I actually get alignment? Now, the next logical question is, okay, I know what a frame, a lever, and a wedge are, but what am I applying these to? You know, how, how do I get a lever? What does that mean? How, what, how do I make a wedge? So, of course, you make these with your body. Um, now, this is something that is, is actually a very simple statement, but it turns out to be relatively profound. There's really only six parts of your body. There's your core. There's your head. You've got two arms and you've got two legs. Um, this is something that, of course, everybody knows and you don't put much thought into it. But if you are aware of how your your body works in the context of jujitsu and how each of these tools have different strengths and weaknesses, it really allows you to fine-tune moves in ways that you might not have previously imagined. So personally, I've always called this the, well, not always, just recently, I've started calling this the anatomic hierarchy. So in your anatomy, you know, in, in order of strength to weakness, The strongest part of your body is your core, right? Uh, But the core is also in a lot of ways one of the hardest parts of your body to use. When you're you're grabbing something or you're trying to exert force, your initial reaction is to try to just use your hands or use your legs. Um, But of course, one of the things you realize very quickly in martial arts, and this is common to jujitsu, striking, wrestling, everyone always says like, put your hips into it, put your core into it. Um, This is a very, very important thing to understand in jujitsu, just the, the importance of leveraging your core for everything you do. Yeah. And and another way to put that would be to control your posture and put your posture in the strongest position you can, because that does directly relate to your core. Since your spine starts at the base of your head and goes all the way down to your uh, to your groin area. So when we talk about using your core, a lot of the time we're talking about having uh, the best posture that we can have for a situation. And I think a prime example of this is uh, my professor, uh, Rob Bernanke. One of the things he always said is, there's no such thing as a scramble. In fact, it's a section on his um, on his online academy where he talks about how there is no such thing as a scramble. So, you know, imagine you are grappling with your partner and you do get a takedown on your partner, or even okay, let's let's say you are um, you are on the bottom in a guard and you're going to sweep your partner and get on top. So, if you get on top. There's that moment where, you know, in a competition, you're, you, if you get control, you're going to get your points rewarded to you for getting the sweep or for the takedown. 
But if you just try and hold your partner's your partner's torso, you're going to find that they have the ability to get into base and essentially quote scramble. Uh, if you're not controlling the levers to their hips, in this case, it would be uh, the ends of their legs, their feet. They're going to be able to get into base, establish a frame, usually with a forearm. And they're going to get back up, and they're going to make make your life hell. And you might not even get your points. So this is um this is one of the, one of the most common things that I see. And I used I used to have this issue until Rob showed me this. There's no such thing as a scramble. It's just you either understand levers and you can control them, or you can't. Yeah. So if your game is you're going to power double someone, you're going to grab them by the hips or whatever around around their thighs, and then you manage to get your takedown, but you don't control the ends of their legs then you know you're you're essentially trying to hold their torso to the ground and it's not the most efficient way you can do this because do, doing so sometimes leaves you open for attacks from the bottom mm-hmm. but also they're going to get they're going to get back into base they're going to get their feet on the ground they're going to keep moving right a, a strong opponent there who has endless cardio just will not stop fighting you need to actually control the levers to the mm-hmm. hip to make sure that you can finish your sweep or your takedown yeah and i will expand on that a little bit as someone who is you know, relatively weak, fragile, and ultimately lazy. <laughs> when it when it comes to scrambles, um, you know, if you were to ask me to say, hey, what is a scramble? How do you define that? Because everyone always talks about scrambles. To me, a scramble is defined as I'm in a position, it's not a position I understand, so I'm just going to rely on pure athleticism to try to get out of this. That's what a scramble is. Speed and strength over yeah. understanding and, and technique yeah. is basically. So basically, when, when people talk about scrambles, they're almost always referring to the positions between the positions they understand. So it's like, I'm somewhere between turtle and stand-up, and so this is a scramble. Well, really... These these position terms that we use, like guard and, and side control and mount, these, these are just labels, right? Like there's nothing magical about these positions. In No matter what you, where you are and what you should always make sure that you've got proper alignment. It doesn't matter whether you fall into the definition of a predefined move. So the, the importance of, of, understanding, of understanding this is that you really, not only is there no such thing as a scramble, but you should always avoid a situation where you consider scrambling. Like, if you're ever in a spot where you're thinking, man, I'm kind of in between moves, I'm just going to beast mode out of this. Don't do that. Uh, first of all, because you're not going to learn anything. Second of all, because when you rely on scrambles, you're basically rolling the dice it could go your way. It might go against you. But I would say the most important reason why you don't want to scramble, I would guess that most injuries occur during scrambles, right? If, yeah. If you, if you, you'll notice that there's a lot of really young athletic guys that train and they're just freaking out on the mats and they scramble and scramble and scramble. And one day they get a devastating injury and they're off for like eight months. And then when they come back, they don't scramble anymore. They've learned their lesson. So, or they don't learn. <laughs> those people are harder to reach. Yeah. Yeah. So my suggestion would be don't be that guy learn this lesson before you rip off your knee or have a serious neck injury just don't scramble focus on always having proper alignment wherever you are and then this becomes less of an issue yeah and as someone who's just coming off from a knee injury a few months ago um i realized that you know i, I didn't want to take time off if you're a if you're a competitor or you just love jiu-jitsu you want to keep training an injury doesn't, you don't want to get set back from an injury. You, you want to find a way to get on the mats and, and still improve every day. It's a natural thing, right? So, so what I realized was my ability to quote scramble was vastly, uh, my, my ability to do it was really every time I would get into a situation where I would normally rely on, not rely on a scramble, but I'd be able to scramble. I, I would have to self-reflect 
and say to myself, no, you're not going to scramble out of this. You have mm-hmm. to, you have to be able to, to manipulate your partner slow. Mm-hmm. You ha- if you can't do it slow, you can't do it fast was what I was thinking. So, and as a result, oddly enough, we could save this topic for another time, but in the injury itself actually made me way mm-hmm. more efficient in my half guard and, and transitional positions between the half guard and, you know, on my partner back steps, I got really intimate with those situations because I was having a ton of guys just back stepping into the four eleven from my half guard. Um, because I would always just pull half guard, um, at, and, and like I said, we can talk about this another time, but the injury itself made me so much better at slowing things down, rounding out certain areas of my game. And, uh, now I'm, when I'm rolling, I'm, you know, I, I didn't rely on scrambles be, to begin with, but now in these positions, I feel like I don't need to scramble. So yeah. the injury actually gave me such a better understanding. But like, like I said, you should never rely on scrambles because there's, you're always going to run into that guy who's got just as much, if not more skill and athleticism as you. And then that's when you're going to end up on the, on the receiving end. So, yeah. you know, I, I think it's pretty fair to say that you always want to focus on your technique and your understanding of jujitsu over your, uh, attributes. Yeah. And, and additionally, you know, the thing to bear in mind too, is that technique is one of the, one of the great things about technique is that it only grows over time. Whereas athleticism and your ability to recover from injury decrease over time. So if you're going to be a smart investor, you want to invest in the, in the thing that's going to get compound and grow over time. If you're relying on your ability to uh, be a freak athlete or, or, you know, to, to just kind of like uh, just beast mode your way out of these difficult situations, you're denying yourself the ability to learn the most important parts of jujitsu and, and jujitsu. Jiu-jitsu is a long journey. You know, it it takes most people, you know, 10-ish years to get a black belt. It's not the kind of thing that you're going to be able to rely on athleticism on forever. You know, eventually you're going to have to fall back on technique. Better to make that a core pillar of your game from the get-go rather than trying to rely on athleticism. Um, I, I remember when I was training with my my first instructor, he, um, he would always tell me at the beginning, uh, you know, you need to slow down. You need to slow down. And so I'd slow down. And then he'd say, you need to slow down some more. And it's like, I I never hit the bottom of the floor. Like I never found out exactly. (laughs) I never got to the point where I was being slow enough that he was actually happy about it. Like you, you always want to be slow and and you want to be loose and relaxed because that's where you develop the best technique. If, and by eliminating athleticism as a factor from your game, it forces you to really understand whether your technique is solid or not. You know, you can't improve your technique if you've got athleticism as a variable in there. And that's a switch, you know, Athleticism is a switch. You can always turn back on in competition, but when you're focused on learning, you should focus on learning technique without any crutches. I agree. And and going back to what I said earlier, if you can't do it slow, you can't do it fast. Mm-hmm. Uh, generally in the gym, when I'm training, I'm always, you know, there's a time and place to turn things up, but you usually want to kill them with kindness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and by that, I mean, you're going to allow your partner to dictate the pace. And so you're giving them that freedom if they want to come, if they want to come hard at you, then you're going to be able to turn it up and match them. But at the same time, you should be, you know, if you're re- excellent jujitsu to me is when you don't need to use any attributes whatsoever, you can do things slow and calculated and there's still nothing your partner can do. That is, that is to me mm-hmm. like true jujitsu. 
that's what you're looking for. Yeah, jujitsu should be a very, very firm hug. Basically, <laughs> you know, you, you, it, it really shouldn't feel like you're trying, you and and your opponent are trying to kill each other. You should. The beautiful thing about jujitsu that makes it different from a lot of other martial arts is that it really is a gentle art. Like you can, jujitsu is about slowing down the car, right? Other other martial arts are about escalating the violence. Jujitsu is about slowing things down to the point where your opponent basically is not moving at all. That That's kind of the game plan. So by taking athleticism out and relying on technique, you can kind of experience that. And I find that that's really the only chance I've got against guys who are younger and stronger and faster than me. I, I can't match them in terms of speed. But what I can do uh, is I can, gra- you know, I can gradually slow them down and bring them into my world. And that's how I deal with guys who are, who are bigger and faster or stronger than me or who want to, to kind of use the athleticism as their main as their main motive, their main game, right? Their main strategy. Yeah. And the best way to do that is to understand that it's it's a game of levers. Mm-hmm. It's a lever battle and it's an alignment battle. And yeah. You can, yeah. If you can maintain alignment and out lever battle your op- opponent, um, you should come out successful. Yeah. Uh, d- and and it should be regardless. I mean, size does matter to some degree. Of course, if your your partner is a yeah. hundred pounds bigger than you, it's going to make a difference, right? But but twenty, thirty, even like fifty pounds, it shouldn't matter as much if you are. Uh, if you're an expert in staying aligned and manipulating levers, you should always come out on top. Yeah. And something you mentioned earlier, Matt, that I think is worth expanding on. You talked about the relationship between the, the power of your core muscles and, and your spine and posture. And really, those are two sides of the same thing, right? When we, when we say we want you to have posture, right, what we're basically saying is use your core effectively. When we're saying we want you to have structure, what we're saying is we want you to use your arms and legs effectively. So that's how these things map back into alignment, right? Posture basically means effective use of your core and your neck, basically your spine. Structure means effective use of your arms and your legs. Now, in terms of what that means and why it's even worth talking about this, you know, you're, you might be listening to this thinking, well, I think everyone knows I've got a head and a torso and two arms and two legs. Why, how, how is this going to make me good at jujitsu? So the reason this matters is because, um, number one, from just an offensive standpoint, you always want to be cognizant of the fact that the core is the strongest part of the body. In almost any technique, if you can engage your hips and your core, you should. You always want to keep pop, pop, proper posture. You want to have your spine and your neck aligned. That's how that factors in. Simultaneously, you know, when you're looking to exploit your opponent, attacking your opponent's core directly is probably not going to yield positive results. I'm not going to say it never works, but, you know, if I try to grab Matt by the waist and just like, you know, power suplex him over my head, uh, it might work. But there's there's more efficient ways to do it. And that's with levers, right? Uh, you know, rather than trying to attack the core, the strongest part of my opponent's body directly, I want to go for an arm. I want to go for a leg. I want to go for a ne- for his neck. And I want to use the fact that if I control those limbs properly, it's going to put a lot of pressure on the things that are stuck to his torso, right? Or to his core. It's going to attack his neck. It's going to attack his shoulders. It's going to attack his hip joints. And once you can lock those parts of the body, the core is basically useless, so that's why this stuff matters. And that's all a lever is, is when you grab and control one of those instead of attacking the core directly. It's just all about efficiency. Yeah, especially when we start talking about applying holds and, uh, you know, getting finishing power and finishing mm-hmm. submissions. If I, let's say I have a Kimura on someone, if I'm trying to finish this Kimura with my arms, 
Um, it's going to be very inefficient. It's going to be a battle. It's it, my opponent's most likely going to punch their arm straight, and I'm not going to have the proper mechanics and wedges needed to immobilize parts of my opponent that will lead to submission. Now, if I if I apply a Kimura in such a way where I actually use my whole body to to apply the finishing power instead of my appendages, I'm going to have a lot more uh, dramatic effects. This this is the same thing. I mean, I'm I'm no striker, but uh, you know, in terms of like uh, kickboxing, put your hip into it, right? You put your hips into it. When if if you're gonna punch with your arms, you know, you're gonna be flailing. There's your punches may they might even look mean, but they're not. They're not. There's no power behind your punches unless you start turning your hips into them. So it, it's everything we do in any sport. The power comes from your hips, and essentially that comes from your ability to uh, how you're planted into the ground. Really, yeah, yeah. Uh, it depends on that. That's where base comes into play. Not only is uh, you know, not only is the base going to give you the ability to have movement, but it's going to give you the power in your hips to generate movement and finishing finishing power. Mm-hmm. Really, um, and that's that's. For all activities, all sports, we always try and call upon the power of our hips. Yeah, yeah. This is, uh, if, if the first mental model we're talking about today is the anatomic hierarchy, basically how your body works, uh, what you're talking about, Matt, is another mental model that I, I've always just called the like the principle of overwhelming force, right? The idea is whenever you're doing any move in jiu-jitsu, you got to be cognizant of the fact that you've got six weapons to use. You've got two legs, you've got your core, you've got two arms, and you've got your head. And you want to be as unfair to your opponent as possible. You want to, you don't want to just be using your hands if you have the option to also use your legs and your core. You want to use every single weapon that you've got to multiply force. That, that's how a, a little person beats a big person, right? When you, when you hear people saying, oh, you know, I, I can't finish the armbar because my opponent grabs his hands together, right? And I can't break his grip. Well, if you're using overwhelming force, that shouldn't really be a problem because I don't care if my opponent is double my size. If he's just clasping his hands together, he's using two arms. If I'm using my legs, my core, and both of my arms against his one arm, I should be able to armbar Brock Lesnar, right? Like, if, assuming I can get him into that position, I should be able to do it. Um, which, but, which would never happen. Which sorry. would never happen. I mean, he, would, <laughs> he would murder me, but in theory, I should be able to armbar anybody. The Where people get caught up is they get so focused on pulling and using their arms against the other person's arms. They're not thinking about, hey, I can actually use my legs to put a pretty tight wedge on this guy, or I can use my core and pull with my core like I'm doing a sit-up to really amplify the power that my, my dinky little arms don't have by themselves. That kind of force multiplier is what makes a big difference. Um, and, and that is where the power of understanding the different parts of your body and where the power comes from is so critical. And in terms of structure, you know, like you, you bring up the, the example of an arm bar. Anytime you're doing an arm bar where you're, you know, your arms are out outstretched and you're trying to pull your hands close to your body, the more outstretched your limbs are, uh, the more, I mean, essentially the more exposed your levers are, maybe not in an arm bar because you're the one on the attack, but, but the less efficient they're going to be. If you can close your structures and create some kind of knee elbow connection yeah. or connect your elbow to your body, um, you're going to get way more uh, dramatic effect mm. and way more power in terms of, you know, anything really yeah, yeah. framing, finishing submissions and just being overall, uh, better structurally aligned. Yeah, man, man, that makes me want to share something that I, I realized, unfortunately, embarrassingly late into my jujitsu journey. Um, when, when you're talking about like what you're trying to do in jujitsu to a person's body, when you're talking about like 
breaking their posture, breaking their structure. Really what you're doing is you're trying to eliminate your the use of your opponent's weapons. So again, if your body has six parts to it, um, what you're trying to do as the guy on the offense is use those as weapons. What the guy or the other guy is trying to do is turn those into liabilities for you. He wants to basically use them as levers and, and ways to exploit you. So you want to use your arm, for example, to generate some sort of force um, or, or to, to control a lever. Your opponent wants to use your arm to do the same to you. He wants to twist it. He wants to use it to misalign you. So really, when, when you are advancing through positions, like if I'm, you know, Matt and I are in guard, both of us have full use of our all of our weapons, right? We've got all all six are in play. Uh, you know, you can use you can use all of the weapons at your disposal, except maybe your head if it's out of range. Um, but as I start to pass, like if I pass Matt's guard, what am I doing? What am I really doing when I pass Matt's guard? Basically, dreaming, you dream, <laughs> dreaming. But uh, in my dream, what am I doing? I'm, I'm basically cutting Matt in half, right? Like I'm when you go to side control, the idea is I'm trying to separate his legs from the rest of his body uh, by like I'm cut, trying to cut him down the middle like a pizza, basically right right across his torso. And the more weapons I can take out of his arsenal, the less effective he's going to be. Eventually, I want to go to mount. I want to start controlling the arms, maybe controlling the neck, and I want to get to the point where all of my weapons are engaged and Matt's just got one arm. And that's basically when I can submit him, right? So this, when, once I realized this, I kind of realized, well, okay, how do I actually prevent my opponent from doing this? And I realized, well, if my, if my opponent is trying to isolate my weapons by basically cutting my body like a pizza and like, you know, sitting on my core, all I have to do is not let him get to my core. And the way you do that is you kind of curl up like a dead spider. If you if you keep, like Matt said, if you can establish elbow-knee connections, basically, you know, make yourself really, really small and, and try to get your elbows as close to your knees as possible. If your opponent cannot actually slice your body in half down the torso, they can never truly pass your guard. And they might be able, they might be able to push you around a bit like a beach ball, but you will always be able to regain and get to a better position. So it is so important at all times to never let your opponent cut you in half. You know, you want to block any attempt at that and keep your elbows and your knees as close as you can together in most situations. Exactly. So what, if, if I understand what you're saying, it, basically creating a wedge be, or at your hip, denying you the ability to bring your elbow to your knee. Uh, to quote Ryan Hall, basically to sum up what you're saying is, you, and this changed the way that I looked at jujitsu, just this one quote in terms of alignment is you want to deny your opponent the resources that they need to sum up a a reasonable defense. So, and that's, and how do you take away your opponent's resources by taking away their posture structure Mm -hmm. and base, taking away their, their alignment. Um, and, and, and you, you use the analogy of a curled up spider, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. Something I always tell my, my students when I'm referring to structures and knee elbow connection is, I bring up two cats fighting because I have two cats and any cat owner out there knows, you know, they know jujitsu from yeah. birth, right? So if they start fighting, you don't just see cats trying to bite each other that you don't see them uh, just clawing at each other. Although sometimes you do, sometimes they actually punch each other, yeah. but most of the time you'll see a cat pull guard and they'll bring their lower legs into the picture mm-hmm. and they start attacking with their lower legs as well hiding their vital organs in their abdomen. So yeah, it's yeah. essentially the exact same thing, creating a, like, like a, a roll bar or a frame, uh, a, a shield with your knee elbow connection is going to give you a really, uh, really effective way to manage distance. And we're going to talk a little bit later about uh, smaller opponents versus bigger opponents. This is an absolutely crucial concept to fighting a bigger opponent is being able to connect 
two structures to be able to create that knee elbow connection. And that's going to be able to, you're going to be able to carry way more weight than if you just frame with your hands, let's say. Yeah. I've always, I mean, this is not an official recognized term, but I've always kind of thought of this as limb coiling. And on the website, this is how I described it. Um, Basically you, you know, you want to have, everyone always says, oh, you want to have T-Rex arms, right? And that's true, but you also kind of want to have a, I don't know what you'd call it, but you kind of want to have T-Rex knees. You want to have a T-Rex neck. (laughs) You you, You basically, you want to bring, your your weapons in close to your core so that you can control what happens to them and your opponent cannot. If I can keep my, my elbows in tight, if I can kind of tuck my knees a bit, keep my head down enough to, so that my opponent cannot use my neck as a handle, then basically it's like he's wrestling with a beach ball. And I mean, yeah, I'm a, I, you might be able to exert some for, force over me, but he can never establish lever control. Uh, and that's so important, right? When you're talking about the, the anatomic hierarchy and the parts of your body, basically what you're saying is the core is where your power comes from, but you can't control the core directly in most cases, so you need to grab a lever. If you can make sure that you're coiled up all the time like a little ball, and your opponent cannot control your arms or your legs, he can't pull that apart from the rest of your body, he can't pull your neck out, then there's really not much for him to grab onto. And that really gives you a lot of positional advantage in most situations. Because if you, if your opponent cannot get a grip on you, a lever on you, and you can establish just one lever on your opponent, you're probably going to start to advance position. Yep. And and well, so let's talk a little bit about how you might manipulate a lever. Mm-hmm. Um, I, this is such a vague topic because it applies to pretty much every Everything. grappling scenario. So, uh, you know, you could, you could look at it from the bottom, you could look at it from the top. Essentially, a lever is a force multiplier. So if I'm going to try and control your arm at the elbow, in the middle of the arm, uh, I'm, it's going to be less efficient than if I control it at the wrist. Okay, so uh, whether I'm on top or I'm on the bottom using a lever to try and, let's say, get into a leg lock entanglement or g- get some sort of sweep, um, I, I, I want to control that lever in such a way that I'm either gaining rotation of the joint. In this case, if it's an arm, it's going to be the shoulder joint, right? Mm-hmm. So if I get internal rotation of the shoulder uh, in, in a Kimura like fashion, I'm now going to throw that shoulder out of alignment. And I should even be able to manipulate my opponent by bringing it across the center line. Uh, this is going to give me dominant angles so that I can now look to possibly go around to the back or enter into different positions or off balance them. If I'm going to look to control my opponent's legs, uh, obviously again, very vague topic. This can prevent my opponent from coming back up. If I have just swept them, it could also, um, you know, if my opponent is on top of me and I'm able to t- pick up their leg with a two-on-one, I affect their base. So now mm-hmm. instead of them having two feet on the ground, I've limited them to just one foot on the ground. Mm-hmm. And what I know when I have my opponents, if I lift my opponent's leg off the ground and they just have one on the ground, they're probably not passing me in that moment. Mm-hmm. So essentially it creates a pocket of time for me to work. It also allows me to... Uh, you know, activate this lever and I can do something with that lever, whether it's going to be pull myself underneath my opponent more effectively or start entering a different guard, right? So so you'll notice that these terms are so vague, but they apply to every okay. single situation. And that's really the beauty of the alignment concept is mm-hmm. it applies to everything and uh, at the same time, it's, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't apply to anything specific. Yeah, it's very Zen. It's like, you know, it's frustrating at first when people start talking to you about alignment because it sounds so vague. You know, you're listening to this and you're like, look, I just want to do an arm bar. Tell me how to do an arm bar. Why are you talking about levers? But eventually 
you realize that it, it's vague, but the reason it's vague is because it describes every possible scenario. And that's what a mental model is. And because it describes every possible scenario, once you've really ingrained that, it lets you make decisions faster. Um, and, and Matt, to, you, to your point about um, arm drags and leg drags, which are basically lever, lever control, um, this is another reason why coiling your limbs is so important, right? Because in, and Matt, you tell me if you disagree with this, but I've, I've always found that, you know, with both the arms and the legs, there are three joints to control. On your arms, you've got your wrist, your elbow, and your shoulder. On your knee, on your legs, you've got your ankle, your knee, and your hip. And if you, as the guy attacking me, want to control one of those levers, you basically need to control at least two of those joints, right? Like you're, if you just can rotate my wrist, it sucks for me, but you kind of also need to get my shoulder into it before you can really control me. So mm-hmm. one of the reasons why it's so important to tuck your knees and to tuck your elbows is because if all you can get a hold of is my wrist is really hard for you to get solid lever control. You need my wrist and my elbow to get that rotational control. So the the flip side to the to getting the lever is if you want to deny the lever, that's all the more reason to keep your, you know, basically you want to make sure your opponent can never get two of those three joints. That's so important if you want to be able to shut down the other guy from getting grips on you. I didn't I didn't even think of it that way, but that is actually a great way to put it. And just it just hammers home, you know, more importantly why you why you want to, let's say if you're on the bottom, have a knee elbow connection, yeah, not yeah. just, not just to prevent your opponent from uh, accessing le- levers. Um, to weaken the strength of that lever too, right? Exactly. Yeah. And, and just to, to manage distance better mm-hmm. by creating a more sound frame. Uh, totally valid point though. That's, you know, perfectly put, mm-hmm. I think. Um, and, and when we talk about alignment guys, like you can tell if, if you've been doing jiu-jitsu long enough and you understand alignment, if you see two guys stand up and they haven't even started grappling yet, you can tell if someone's effective or not just by the way that they're standing, right? yeah, their yeah. wrestling stance. If you look, if they have a really narrow stance um, or, or let's say their feet are linear instead of one foot uh, staggered, you're going to tell, okay, well, that person clearly, you know, if, you, if I push that person, they're going to have to take a step back to stay in base. If someone's arms are always reaching for their opponent, right? They're either, they're either, uh, they don't know what they're doing or they're really good and they're trying to bait their opponent into trying to grab an arm drag or something like that, which would be foolish. So generally, like you say, T-Rex arms, you know, if you see two standing opponents, like one, one guy I love to point out is Gary Tonin, uh, one, probably my favorite grappler to watch. Of course, now he's doing MMA and one famous, uh, grappler from the Dan Herdesk squad. He, he's got the funniest stance. He's got his hands in front, like they're jazz hands. Mm-hmm. And he's got these T-Rex arms. It looks silly, but if you look at what he, how he's aligning himself, he's in the best possible position. His yeah. posture is always good. His head is never bent over. His arms are tucked in. So you can't manipulate yeah. levers and his feet, feet are constantly moving and he's always in base. Yeah. This is a sign of, of a sound grappler. And, and once you see it, you'll be able to, to tell who is good. Why are they good? And, mm-hmm. um, you know, how can, how can you make yourself more aligned just by keep, by thinking about posture, structure, and base? Um, yeah. Yeah. This is, you know, this is kind of a bit of a detour, but there, there's a Japanese martial art. I'm not going to butcher the name because I'm not sure how to pronounce it, but basically it's the art of drawing a sword. Um, there's a whole Japanese art where like all they do is they try to do the perfect drawing of a sword. Like it's not actually about fighting with the sword. It's just the idea is if you're so awesome at drawing the sword, 
you can win the fight just by that. Now, that sounds absolutely ridiculous. It sounds crazy. But I'm starting to think there might be something to it when it comes to jujitsu, right? You know, to, Matt, to the point that you, you came up with, if you're even before you've made first contact with your opponent, you can kind of look at the two guys and you can just tell who's going to be the first mover, who's going to get those grips. And in jujitsu, like, man, whoever gets the first dominant grip is almost always going to be able to control the position. It's If you lose the dominant grip fight, it kind of doesn't matter how good your takedown or your guard pass is. You're probably going to wind up losing losing the fight until you can reverse that control. Um, Matt, to the point that you talked about the jazz hands thing, I mean, yeah, it sounds silly, but man, if, you, if you've got your elbows tucked and the only thing you're expo- exposing are your hands... You've got the ability to grab and control your opponent and do something to him. But man, if he grabs your wrist, there's not there's nothing he can do unless he can also get your elbow and then he's got some control. So get being the first mover, like I, I firmly believe, and again, this is another mental model that applies to any situation in jiu-jitsu, grips dictate the position. Like whoever, and I don't just mean like lapel grips or gi grips, but whoever has a dominant lever on their opponent, um, even before you've technically entered a position, they're going to be the ones who dictate take the fight yeah it's just like in judo right it's the Mm -hmm. person who gets the grips that establishes that grip is going to be the one who can throw until your your opponent outgrips you so i guess now we should we should start to discuss how this matters in terms of um you know from in in a guard Mm -hmm. scenario right so so if i'm playing guard and i have a you know let's say a delahiva position and i have a hand on the leg that i'm i'm wrapping my delahiva hook around and then i let's say i have a the near side collar Mm-hmm. Right. So what, one of my favorite ways to play De La Hiva, collar and, and, and ankle grip. Yeah. Um, if, if your partner or sorry, opponent continues to try and pass without addressing that grip on the collar. He's a dead man. He's 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 playing right into a, a guard where you have the resources needed to off balance them. Yeah. OK, so and this is this is one of the more common things I see as an instructor when I see new people come in, uh, you, you know, you'll pull guard with a new guy. And all they're thinking about is how am I going to get past coach's guard? How am I going to, how am I going to not get swept? Right. So you take your grips, right. And then, so they've lost the engagement phase. We've discussed this in a previous episode, the, the phases of guard, the engagement phase. So they've lost that phase. And now what they're trying to do is continue to pass through your guard while you have these grips. And the result is I can now steer my opponent. I can get Kazushi, which is just off balancing my opponent. I can create uh, I, I can create that break in their balance and thus giving myself an opportunity to either transition to a new guard or to get a sweep. So one thing we got to say is, is if someone is gripping with you and you know, this is a gi now scenario that we're yeah. talking about. Even in no gi though, like the principle is no different. You just, it have, really more, is. You just have more options in gi. It really is. It's just, it's just gi is a little bit more um, like visualizable. Yeah. And, and, and if someone has a grip on your lapel, it's like, well, you can't necessarily just slide out of that. Whereas in no gi, you, you know, you're sweaty. You might be able to slide out of some stuff. Athleticism does play a factor, but, but the grips aren't as permanent. Greasiness also Gre- plays a factor. Greasiness <laughs> plays a factor. Uh, and and uh, athleticism is is a little yeah. bit more of a, a factor, right? You just need to lift a bunch of weights and you need to yeah. eat like a whole bowl of French fries before yeah. class and just hope it comes out of your pores. Yeah, and one thing I do is I always Vaseline before <laughs> class. I don't want anyone winning any lever battles. Exactly. But, it should be like a slip and slide, man. Yeah. Uh, but, but back to what I was saying, like if someone's passing your guard and you have grips on their gi, that's the equivalent in judo of someone gripping you. They've got the dominant grips and you're trying to throw them. Yeah. 
right? Like I'm not going to say it's impossible, but the chances are very unlikely. So, yeah. so what we've done is we've sort of established a, a bed mass, if you will, like an order of operations yeah. where uh, now when someone, if someone pulls guard on me and they get a good grip, I need to assess the situation assess my base and, mm-hmm. and, and align my posture structure base to that so that I don't get immediately swept, then I'm going to break that grip. And ideally the hand that was gripping me, I'd like to dominate that hand yeah. because now I take away my opponent's ability to regrip. Yeah. If you so, just break the grip and your opponent can just regrip you right away. Yeah. It's not, useless. Well, not only is it useless, it's worse than useless because in the process of breaking that grip, you have surely exposed yourself to some sort of counterattack. So you've created openings without achieving anything. Like the, the only effective way to break a grip um, is really to do so in such a way that your opponent can no longer regrip you once they do it. That's right. And, and a little formula that I use when I'm passing, um, like, a, let's say, an open guard in the gi, right? Like someone has a Delahiva hook or whatever. Like I said, they, they've, they've gripped you. So you've kind of lost this gripping battle. But you're in their guard. You're standing. You don't want to get swept. We want to eventually pass. Generally speaking, my order of operations is I get my alignment. So I'm not going to get swept in that moment. Then I address the main grip that's going to off-balance mm-hmm. me. I break that grip, ideally with a two-on-one. Once I break that grip... I either can pass right away or I manage the distance. I reset the distance by backing out possibly, which will, uh, you know, if you're on your back and, and you have a nice guard, but you have, now your opponent backs away, you now have to readjust your range, right? So it, it adds a mix into it. I could also go side to side, which is going to change the angle of, of your hips. So it creates a reaction from the person on the bottom. Once this happens, we set up a situation where the person on the bottom is almost in a frantic like state where they have to have successful frames and they have to re-grip, but possibly yeah. you are now in a dominant grip. Maybe in this exchange, you have achieved a dominant grip. Now it's time to look to pass as opposed to someone on the bottom has a grip on me. Screw it. I'm going to try and pass anyways. That's yeah. how you end up on your face and, and, you know, in a bad position once you get swept. Yeah. And, and this applies to every position, right? Like if you're in side control on the bottom, you don't really want to focus on trying to escape out of there if your opponent is still cross-facing you. You need to deal with that first. Or if your opponent is on your back, man, if he's like wrapping his arms around your neck, probably advisable to at least partially address that before you start trying to escape. It's, it's like Matt said, there's a there's an order of operations here and grips dictate position. They And, and actually, we should probably expand that definition too because talking about grips and grip breaking is, is not really covering the full story. Um, a grip, when you think of grips, you're usually thinking of like, I'm using my hand and grabbing something. But technically, a, a grip is just any sort of control that you're putting over a lever. It's possible to, to have a quote-unquote grip using your leg or using your your chest even right like i mean i i am notorious for doing this in some situations if, if you're if the guy's on the bottom and you're trying to pass his guard like man if you can step on his leg sometimes like that that's yeah. kind of a grip in some ways right you're, really it's not about using your hand it's about having control over a lever and your opponent not being able to to basically uh, re- control you with that lever. Um, additionally, breaking grips is only one way of dealing with this problem. Um, I, I don't think of it necessarily as breaking. I, I like to think of it more as inverting grips. So, and the reason I think of it this way is because um, breaking grips in some situations doesn't really apply. In some situations, you're just, the the grip has you torqued at such a weird angle that breaking it might not be realistic. And in some situations, you're like sparring with someone who has like half baboon DNA and their their hands are just so strong, you just can't deal with it. So 
it, it is still possible in that situation to invert control of the grip. But like the, the common thing is like if you if you don't want to break the grip for whatever reason, um, other options for dealing with that grip are you can invert control of the grip, meaning like, OK, if he's grabbed my arm, I can maybe grab his arm and then twist my arm so that now I have the power in the situation. Or if your body is free enough, you can actually just change your alignment. Like you can reposition your whole body in such a way that the grip itself is no longer effective. Because right. Irrelevant. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, the most common situation is like if the guy is like framing and trying to block you while you're guard passing and you hop and try and pass on the other side, that's what that you're effectively inverting control of the grip because his grip is no longer useful. So whichever of those methods you use, whether it be breaking the grip, inverting control, or just moving right around the grip and repositioning your body, the important thing is you need to deal with that grip before you try to positionally advance. It is that like whoever dictates the grip is going to dictate the position. And that is so important to understand wherever you are in jujitsu. Yes. Yeah, a side note on gripping, um, uh, some terminology that Rob uses is, uh, is a proxy control yes. and direct control, right? So proxy control is going to be referring to grips that aren't directly upon my opponent's anatomy. So like a gi grip, mm-hmm. right? And a direct control. So let's say I have direct control of the lever. This is one of the... Like a Kimura grip or like something, Like a Kimura right? yeah. grip or like, you know, I'm, I'm, I have an X guard and the leg is on my shoulder, right? Like I have direct control of the leg. Or let's say you have De La Hiva. For example, I could grab your, your heel with my with the same hand that I'm I'm wrapping my Delahiva hook around your leg. Now I have control of that ankle. I have to some extent I have control of the rotation of the leg. Whereas if I just grab your pants with the Delahiva, uh, it's not a position I like too often because my ha- I have little girl hands. But but at the, uh, you don't have this the same directional control, but you do have control of their pants. So it's important to understand these two different types of grips especially if you're a gi grappler translating into a no gi situation. Like I always get guys coming to my club that say, you know, Oh, I only do gi and, and I've come, I'm coming to you because you guys do a lot of no gi, but I just don't know where to grab. I just don't know how to like, how do you have these grips? It's like, well, I have, di- I have direct control. I, I don't need a gi if I know how to manipulate levers properly. If mm-hmm. all I think about is grabbing clothes, then I, it's going to be difficult for me to uh, get that into my mind that, hey, I need to directly control these levers. It's important to have an understanding of both so that you can you can grapple mm-hmm. in both a gi and a no gi situation. And, and also maybe your hands are super strong and you can take these gi grips that uh, that are, are, you know, really hard to break. Or maybe your hands are a little bit harder than mine working in a kitchen for 10 years. You know, you start to get arthritis and whatnot. You got to start thinking about manipulating the lever itself. So mm-hmm. it's important to understand uh, the differences and the pros and cons of proxy versus direct control. Well, let, let me ask you a question, Matt, something I've been struggling with on this topic. Uh, when it comes to direct control, I feel like I usually have a pretty good handle on what I need to do. You know, we talked about this earlier. There's only so many joints in the human body. You need, once you kind of understand how they work, you know how to grab and control the lever. But I find that proxy control can get really gnarly sometimes. And I find sometimes I have trouble finding out where the control point on the lever is and how to get out. Like, I mean, you know, when you get like stuck in like something like worm guard, like, man, where, where's the lever? Like, it's, it's hard to tell, you know, you've got this like sailor knot tied around your leg. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have any pointers or strategies for when you get into these weird um, proxy control positions? How do you kind of unravel them when you're not necessarily dealing with the human anatomy? Are you specifically referring to the worm guard? No, just in general, right? Like you, you can get into, there's just so many more levers when you're talking about gi, you know, not only yeah. are you dealing with arms and legs, but you've got this massive liability yeah. wrapped all around your body. Yeah. And like, 
it can be it can be a it can there's so many ways it's almost like having like eight different arms that people mm-hmm. can grab onto but you can't use them for anything yeah so so, so uh, like that's an awesome question right and, mm-hmm. and the way that i would answer it, it we've really already answered it mm-hmm. the answer to that would be like if you want to use worm guard for example is i'm i'm gonna imagine my lapel my worm is a lever how do mm-hmm. I do it? I deny you access to my lever. I, pre- I don't let you grab that lever. If you grab that lever, I break that grip before you can get your weave. Because mm-hmm. once the worm guard is set in and it's tight, the well, worm has turned. We, we basically, <laughs> yeah, we're, we're basically in phase two or three. Like we, yeah, we, yeah. we want to win the engagement battle. Um, and, and likewise, like if you're trying to grab my collar or whatever, uh, I'm trying to deny you access to the collar. And ideally, I'm going to try and control your hands because if I control your hands, I control right. the, the end of the lever, the lever to your shoulder. And I deny you the ability of now gripping with that lever. So not like if I grab, if, if I'm on top and I can grab a sleeve, not only is it going to prevent you from gripping with that sleeve, I now know that you can't base on that arm, yeah, yeah. which is going to prevent you from scrambling quote unquote scrambling and getting up from that position. So mm-hmm. knowing that you can't use that arm to get up and get, I've taken away your structure and your base just by making that one grip. And that might lead me into a successful pass. That's a really good, thank you so much. Cause that's a really good way of explaining it. I mean, I guess the takeaway is that when you're still in that engagement phase, you've kind of got to, you know, just like you wouldn't let Uki grab your arms or your legs or your neck, you've got to think of your lapels and and your collar as just other parts of your body, even your belt. They're, They're like other parts of your body. You wouldn't let uh, the guy arm drag you, you also have to consider that gri- him gripping the lapel can be just as dangerous. And you need to just deny that at the grip fight level before you get tied up too badly. Exactly. Cool. Well, so, uh, I think, I think now would be an awesome time if we, uh, so we, we've gotten a bunch of support. I mean, this is, this is such a new thing for us. It's only mm-hmm. about a week or two old. Um, and it all started with that website that we sort of put together. And, uh, thank you for, for everyone who's been contacting us and telling us about how how awesome it's been to listen to us i mean really we're just talking about jujitsu and for you guys to actually think that you can get something valuable out of this is just like the coolest thing ever and we've asked uh if there's been any questions or anything that we can maybe answer for you and we'd like to get into some some questions that yeah have asked. yeah and just to you know to reaffirm that a huge thank you to everyone who reached out with their feedback we received some very excellent feedback and it is super humbling to know that um people out there are are listening and actually finding this valuable i'm, I'm very thankful for that and as always if you have any feedback positive or if there's areas for improvement please do reach out and let us know it's greatly appreciated as as matt mentioned we are still very new at this whole podcasting game um, but like you said we have started to receive some questions from people. So we've got a few here that maybe we can go over quickly. Some of the questions that came in are honestly probably deep enough that they merit whole future episodes, but we've pulled out a few that are actually somewhat related to what we've talked about here today. Um, Matt, maybe we can run through these one at a time. The first question that that we got, which I think is a, a very valid question that everyone relates to, is how do you adjust these strategies that we're talking about when you're dealing with an opponent who is much larger or more athletic than you? Yeah, this this is a great question. And really, it's a it's a it's a question that's so hard to answer. I mean, like, look, you and I are similar size, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you're, you're like 155. I'm about 165. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're I, like a jack version of me, basically. <laughs> like a better looking, <laughs> younger, more athletic version yeah. of you. Um, 
Yeah. And, and doing jujitsu, like generally we're, we're usually the smallest guys in the room. And there may be a few exceptions, like, you know, kids, but, but yeah. we're generally the smallest guys. And in man, the room. I, I, I just run over those kids like a tractor, man. You know, it's just, <laughs> yeah, you gotta, you gotta, cause eventually they're going to start screwing us. Yeah. Up, you right? you got to get as many wins on the little yeah. kids as possible because eventually yeah. they're going to be bigger and stronger than you. So you got to be able to remind them, Hey, I tapped you like a hundred times when you were 12 right. years old. So, and I, I've done, I've done a fair share of competing in my day and, and a lot of it has been against bigger guys like you know and local you've done trip, a lot of absolute competition a lot of absolute competitions i'm i basically prepare my mind so that when i go in i'm gonna be weaker than the other guy uh probably not gonna be as athletic as the other guy i'm gonna need to rely on my technique and my strategy so strategies that you can prepare for a bigger opponent well uh, th- this really all comes down to managing distance, right? It, it's it's a lever battle. It's a range battle. So I want to make sure that I win the lever battle. I uh, Hopefully the engagement phase uh, goes in my favor and I do everything I can so that my opponent doesn't get into phase two uh, of guard retention on their terms. Right? Yeah, because if it, now you're on the defense already, right? Exactly. Like if a big guy enters my half guard and I have knee shield and I'm framing everything and then they blow through that and all of a sudden they're flattening me and they've got their chest heavy on me and they're starting to cross face me, like things just went really bad. And yeah. and that is what I want to avoid. So going against big guys, I again, to quote the great Ryan Hall, if I'm being good, if I if, if I'm doing good jujitsu, it should be as clinically boring as possible. Yeah. I should I should force my opponent to uh, be slowed down, to be boring, right? Like I I don't want a big guy being able to impose his size on me mm-hmm. and being able to squish me. So how do I do that? I keep good alignment. I keep my hips in the right angle. Uh, I address where the force vector is coming from, and I create appropriate base and a, a appropriate frame for that force. Sometimes I have to, uh, you know, create knee elbow connections so that I can bear more weight on my body. All these little tricks that allow me to stay in a good position and just stay safe and wait for my opportunity or create that opportunity. Um, and so much of it comes with out gripping and uh, winning the lever battles that later on pay off so much. Because like I said, the last thing you want is for a big person to be able to lie on top of you and crush you. Yeah. You yeah. always want to avoid that from happening. Yeah. It's like, you know, size is not the be all end all, but gravity is very unpleasant when you are on the receiving end. Um, we talked about actually a lot of strategies earlier in this episode that are especially important when you're dealing with a bigger, stronger person. Um, the, I'd say that the main takeaway though really is that like, the thing about mental models that's great is that they're universal. They work against a big person or a small person. The thing is, though, you've got less room for error against a big person. And actually, this is why I would suggest as a, as a smaller guy, it's very beneficial to find a big guy that you can trust and roll with them and understand what it's like to be in a position where you can't make a mistake. Absolutely. I, I think I think a problem that a lot of us make is we train within our comfort zone and we're afraid to go roll with the guy who's got like a hundred pounds on us. But you know, any you know, to some extent that's maybe a wise fear. If it's some guy that you don't know and you don't know what he's gonna do. But if it's someone that you know and you trust, you should actively seek out those situations because you can't cheat or rely on athleticism or scrambles when you're rolling against someone where you just don't have that a possibility of that advantage. So just to kind of recap my advice on the matter, I mean, number one, remember grips dictate position. You've got to win the grip fight always, but that's especially important against bigger guys because they may not give you the chance to recover your guard once you've lost it. You've got to make sure 
that you have control of the grip situation. How do you do that? Well, the easiest way is to not let them get a dominant grip on you. So number one, make sure that, you know, you've got basically you coil your limbs. You want to be like a dead spider. If they can only grab your wrist, their ability to control you is much more limited than if they have your wrist and your elbow. You always want to have your elbows in, your neck, your head, your neck down protected. You want to have your knees in close. You want to be like a dead spider, basically, because you don't want your opponent to use his likely much more significant weight to cut you in the half in half right down your torso right if they the most common thing that i think people complain about against big guys is when they've got you in half guard and or they've got you in side control and you just can't move and the reason why that's happened is because they've cut you in half in the case of half guard they've cut one of your legs off basically and in the case of side control they've cut both of your legs off to fix that don't worry too much about the big power bridge or, yeah. you know, the hip escape. It's not the escape you need. Yeah, it, it's the alignment you need. Get yeah. your elbow, keep your, your chin tucked, get your elbows and your knees as close as possible. If your opponent cannot cut your limbs off by breaking you by going right across your core, it, you know, it's it, they might still be on top, but you're in a much safer position and eventually you should be able to get out. Might take some time. But eventually you will be able to get out. And and talking about what we were discussing in the beginning of of episode when we're talking about, you know, levers and whatnot. If you're going against a bigger opponent, a great way to handle a big first of all, against a big opponent, I, I wanna use I wanna win the lever battle and the engagement phase so that I can get a dominant angle. Mm-hmm. Once I get the dominant angle, like let's say I'm going to my opponent's back or, uh, you know, I've just pulled drag, done an arm drag or give yeah. I've, I've created an opening and now I'm in a position where I have a, a, a better position to attack than they do. Mm-hmm. If I can get a two on one, like a Kimura control on a bigger person. Um, yeah, they're going to have more strength than an, of someone my size. They might be able to, uh, you know, punch their arms straight and, and, and destroy my Kimura. But if my Kimura control is sound, I should be able to use it enough to immobilize yeah. them. And at that point, uh, I'm going to look to control the opposite side of their body whether with, you know, imagine a crucifix, right? So you, you have a Kimura. Now you're going to try and tie up their far arm or their far hip. And this and these, these uh, you know, directional control, if you have rotational control of their body by controlling opposite corners, you're going to have a pretty successful uh, control on a, on a bigger opponent. Yeah. And that's, um, it, you know, what you talked about there is it, I know everyone knows this, but you know, it doesn't matter how big your or strong your opponent is. If you are putting tremendous torque on their neck or their shoulder or their hip, you know, they're not going to be able to bench press you with their shoulder, right? Like the, the whole benefit behind attacking a lever is you're putting massive pressure on their neck, their shoulder, or their hip. And that's how you control their core. That's how you defeat a bigger guy. So when you're when you're grip fighting or lever fighting against a bigger opponent, always ask yourself that. Am I, am I doing something that is going to ultimately put pressure on their neck, their shoulder, or their hip? Because if you're not, if you're just basically just like manipulating just their arm, well, you know, big guys have big arms, right? Yeah. But you, you need to be able to mess up the joint that is directly attached to the core. That's how you defeat a bigger, stronger guy. And also, uh, just, just in, you know, everything, everything that we've talked about so far applies. It's all jujitsu. Like you said, it's, it doesn't matter if someone's bigger than you, it's going to apply the same, same size person or a bigger person. But when I'm on top, let's say I'm trying to hold down a bigger person, I'm going to try and create wedges around their body. But even still, you know, big guys sometimes can do the old CrossFit escape where they just 
absolutely yeah. bench press you off of them. Yeah, the Hulk smash escape. Yeah. So, so like that can happen. That's a reality. Mm-hmm. The, you're not going to be able to just be so heavy that you, you can always prevent that. Like what if your opponent is over 100 pounds bigger than you? So uh, movement is going to be yeah. also a key factor, right? Yeah. Like if, if you're trying to hold someone down and you just can't hold them down because they're too strong, you know that if they press you off of them, they're going to start retaining their guard. Mm-hmm. So having uh, contingency plans where you're starting to now navigate into different scenarios and you can transition around them. Uh, you're going to stay ahead of the defense and you're going to be yeah. able to maintain a stronger position. So again, like even if you're talking about dominant angles, you could think about a guard pass being a dominant angle uh, because your opponent doesn't have the ability to frame with their legs. And if you can, if you could deny a big person the ability to get their guard back, from the uh, and you're on top that's a good way to defeat a big person as well yeah yeah um and, and you know that's actually a good point you know in the in the wonderful scenario where you do get top position on a bigger guy um the reason why you know you mentioned movement is important you, and this actually applies no matter uh, what your size is you know side control is actually not about just using your weight on the guy not at it's, all. it's about using the the fact that you have massive movement opportunities from side control and what the reason why movement is important is because that is how you invert grips from side control, right? When you're when the guy on the bottom grabs your hip or he grabs your chest and you feel he's about to bench press you, well, by repositioning your body, you can neutralize all of those grips. So rather than trying to be heavy and hoping that your body weight is more than the other guy can bench press, your better option is when you feel that, that he's established that dominant grip and he's about to lift you, move your body in such a way that those grips are no longer useful. I, I find personally the easiest way to do that is to pop up to neon belly, right? If he's trying to bench press me and I pop up to neon belly, can't bench press me anymore. He's got to try something else. And eventually he's going to bring his hands somewhere else. And then if I want, I can sit back down to side control. Yeah. Or just top spin, hopefully to the other side and yeah, use yeah. movement to create a transition, which keeps you ahead of the defense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, any other comments on that matter? Do you want to go to the next question? No, let's go to the next question. Okay. So the next question, and this is, um, you know, very, very topical when we're talking about the human body strategies and training tips for older guys. Um, this is a category that I have recently found myself entering into. Um, and as someone who has always been kind of fundamentally frail and lazy and most importantly, afraid to hurt, <laughs> I, I find that this is very important. Um, I, I think that at any level, injury prevention and awareness of, of how to utilize your body is important. It's especially important at, uh, as you get older because, you know, you're not going to be able to recover faster. And frankly, you probably have more to lose too, right? When you're older. Um, I would say that what we talked about earlier generally kind of applies. Number one, don't scramble. If you scramble, that's probably where you're going to start to see bad injuries. And create habits that will bad, lead to injuries. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, number two, keep your levers close to you at all times. Um, a big cause of common injuries is leaving a leg dangling or leaving an arm dangling while you're in a transition. Um, even if your opponent doesn't exploit that, like the fact that your leg is free, he might still land on it. And that is never fun. So you always put one of the benefits of limb coiling is if you don't leave a target out there, then you're much less likely to get hurt. I mean, um, and, and additionally be, you know, be aware of the kind of, of moves that have a degree of of risk for you. Um, I find, for example, like just given my body type, you know what feels good for your body and what doesn't feel good for your body. And this is going to vary on a person by person basis. I I found for me, like there are certain moves where just, I, it just doesn't feel right. I can't explain why, but I've kind of come to just trust that instinct. And I try not to avoid situations where I, I have to rely on like explosive athleticism or speed. If you're going slow and you're being technical 
and you're not leaving any targets out there for your opponent to exploit and you're not scrambling, probably you're going to be able to train into a pretty old age. Yeah. Uh, some, some recommendations that I would give for an older practitioner is very similar to recommendations I would give a young practitioner that's just starting out. So it's like, you know, keep it playful, right? Mm-hmm. Like you, you're not in the gym trying to kill each other. It depends too. Like, are you an old man who wants to, or a woman who wants to compete? Probably not. You're probably mm-hmm. just doing it for exercise and the camaraderie and mm-hmm. learning how to choke each other out, which is really cool. So mm-hmm. like when you're learning that, first of all, it's up to the professor to instill a concept of alignment as opposed to like, oh, okay, we're going to look for these moves, right? Mm-hmm. Especially at that age, you want to keep your body safe and, and in the safest positions you can. And that can only come through an understanding of alignment. Um, and like I said, keep it playful. Like when you're rolling in the gym uh, and you're an older guy and it's time to roll with the young gun, it's like, okay, just first of all, put your ego at the door and realize, hey, I might get tapped and that's okay. That's okay. As long as we both get good training. Right. Mm-hmm. Or, or if you slow it down, if you're able to slow the game down, yeah. you're going to benefit so much more in the long run. And you're good. You know, when I first started learning jujitsu, I was I didn't want to lose a round. I, I would want to uh, every round I'd want to win. I'd want to get a submission every round. Like I don't want anyone submitting me. I, if someone submit me, I get pissed off mm-hmm. now. <laughs> 10 years later, I'm a black belt. I'm like, okay, I got through practice without getting hurt. Awesome. Yeah. That's a success. I, I, look I got forward- tapped a bunch of times, <laughs> but I'm happy with that. Like that, that it, it becomes less about what you do on the mats and more about uh, being able to train another day, right? Yeah. Every day, like, sorry to ramble on with this. When I, when I first started doing judo, before and after class, they would do seiza, which where they're, they bow or they, they're on their knees. And it's essentially a form of meditation. And I always thought this was corny. Like, why the hell are these guys doing this? Like in jujitsu, we never do this. You know, we shake hands or whatever, bow in, bow out. But like they're meditating for a good 15, 20 seconds. Then they bow in. And, and, and then I realized they're thanking God that they got through a training session without getting hurt. Mm-hmm. And there's, this is their little, their little thank you to the grappling gods for giving me another day of training. That's how you got to approach every training session. And even I think as an older person, that's something you got to think about always. How am I going to get out of this? How am I going to survive and not get hurt? Yeah, consistency trumps um, just like pure impact and athleticism every time, right? Like the, the tortoise really does beat the hare in the long run. Maybe not, maybe not this month, maybe not even this year, but over the decades, the tortoise is going to beat the hare. Um, and, and the thing to Matt's point is that, you know, when you're, when you're dealing with someone who is super aggressive and athleticism or an athletic, and they're like clearly trying to, to beat you, right? Your body's natural reaction is to try to fight back and match their speed and their power. And that's a losing game. Even if you have speed and power, for the reasons we outlined earlier in this episode, it's really, really bad to rely on those. The beauty of jiu-jitsu is you don't need to raise your athleticism to your opponent's level to beat him. You can drag him down to, basically you can grind him to a halt. That's the better strategy, not just if you're a big guy or a small guy, but always. Rather than trying to speed the game up, you want to slow the game down. You want to basically bring him into the spider's web and then just sort of systematically dismantle him. That's where jujitsu is effective. So be aware of, of this feeling because everyone has it at some time. It's a natural fight or flight response. You've got someone who's bigger and stronger than you and they clearly want to beat you and that's terrifying, but you have to be self-aware and you can't let your, your body do the thinking in this one. You have to let your mind do the thinking and you have to realize that the key to success, um, or at the very least the key to surviving <laughs> is to 
slow him down to your level. Don't try to raise yourself up to his level. Bring him down. De-escalate. That's what jujitsu is all about. That's why it's the gentle art. And and also definitely uh, just know your limit. Play within it. Right. <laughs> so so if you're if you're uh, you know your coach is telling you to do a bunch of inversions and you just you, you you know you can't even you can't even roll back and put your toes on the mat. Like that's okay as an older person. If you're a little bit unflexible or you can't do a move, that's okay to say, hey, you know what? I can't do this yeah. yet. Yeah. I'm going to keep trying. I'm going to do my best to try and get to this point. But right now as it is, I can't do it. And what that means is, is you're identifying, hey, there's something that I need to work on to improve. But also that if I, if I overdo this right now, I might hurt myself. I might hurt my back, right? Because in the first few months or even the first year of jujitsu, your body is it's in shock doing mm-hmm. all these weird movements, these twisting contortionist uh, inversions, all these things like you're not normal. People don't do these movements and your body needs to adapt to this. And it takes time. Once your body adapts, you gain a level of flexibility and a level of uh, integrity. That's really fantastic. But up until that point, you want to listen to your body, make sure that you don't overdo things. And again, just survive another day, train another day. Yeah. If your body is clearly telling you that a move you're doing or something you're doing is not good for you, then you should listen to the wisdom of your body, at least until you figure out what the problem is and how to alter the technique so that you don't have that problem. Another thing too, is that people's bodies are different. And sometimes maybe the way that everyone else does a move works for them, but sometimes you can make small alterations that make a move work for you. I mean, just because it's technically wrong, according to everyone else who does it, If the move works for you and it's fundamentally sound and your body's happy with it, then small alterations are fine. I do this all the time. There's, um, you know, there's certain moves that I do differently from everybody else just because I know based on the way that my body responds, it's going to be more effective for me. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. So one more quick question. Um, what is a leading edge and why does it matter? Matt, I'm going to leave this one to you because this sounds like something that you would know. Yeah. And we've already addressed, I, I believe we've mentioned leading edges. So essentially like uh, this is kind of a game changer when it comes time to uh, dealing with someone on top, right? So a, a leading edge is essentially, um, and usually a, we've established, it's usually a wedge mm-hmm. uh, that your opponent uses that will break your alignment on top. So like uh, if, if, I'm, if I'm on the bottom playing guard and I'm in half guard or I'm in side control or whatever, and my opponent cross faces me. I'm establishing that the cross face is the leaning edge because it is the the nearest part of my opponent's body that is breaking my alignment. So if I'm in a if I'm in side control on the bottom and my opponent has a good cross face on me, pushing away on their hips, which is generally a natural reaction for beginners, is to push away on the body, the torso, right? It really does me no good because my my posture is still broken. My opponent is driving their shoulder down into my face, breaking my posture. So what good is pushing my opponent's torso away when their arm is actually creating the, mm-hmm. the pressure, right? So I need to establish that, hey, the leading edge, the main force vector is probably coming from that arm. That's why it's important to not get flat, not get flattened out, and to, to establish frames on that far arm and just monitor it so that your opponent never breaks that, uh, never, never breaks the, um, never closes the distance enough to flatten you out and put you in the cross face, right? Same thing, same thing if you're a standing pass, like they do a, a knee on belly, the knee on your belly, they've created a wedge next to your hip. That's the leading edge, right? That is the, the force factor that we need to address. So we're going to 
hopefully align our hips in that direction, which would be ideal, and set, get ourselves in base by putting our feet on the ground and establishing frames on that leaning edge. From there, hopefully we can do a hip escape and we can establish our legs back as frames. There are obviously, you know, times when we address this differently. Like if I'm going to Gramby away from you, for example, I'm turning my hips away from you, I'm doing an inversion, but it all ends up with me managing the distance and getting my frames back. So Essentially, a leading edge is uh, a wedge or a portion of my opponent's body that is going to be the closest part that uh, to me that is going to break my alignment. Got it. Yeah, we talked about this a little bit yesterday, but we did or last episode, but we didn't specifically use the term leading edge. Basically, where you've like you've weaponized a wedge, like you're using a wedge not just to block your opponent's movement in one direction or another, but like you're actually you driving the wedge forward and leading with the edge or with a wedge, which makes it a I guess the leading edge here, uh, and that's kind of the, like the primary focus of your attack. And I, I guess the the suggestion there is when you are uh, when your opponent is doing this to you, probably you need to address that at leading edge first and foremost. Like to your point, you know, trying to block their hip or something. If it's the shoulder that's coming at you, you really need to deal with that first. Yeah, and, and so much. Yeah, I mean, important for anyone, but against a bigger opponent, really important to identify what the leading edge is or what it could be right mm-hmm. because then you're now you're thinking ahead and you're anticipating what the leading edge is going to be and that's just going to make you more prepared down the road uh, and helping you stay in a better alignment against someone on top awesome awesome so um just to recap quickly uh it, what we talked about today we covered a few different mental models the first and foremost being uh, the anatomic hierarchy basically understanding that the your the power of your body primarily comes from your core Followed by that, your legs are probably the second most effective, powerful part of your body. Then your arms, then ultimately your neck. These are the weapons that you've got, um, generally speaking. When, and this is the principle of overwhelming force. You want to use as many of those weapons against your opponent to apply leverage versus just relying on your arms when you, you for example, could be using your core. We talked about limb coiling, which is eff- effectively keeping your your arms, in, your elbows in, your knees in, your neck down, like kind of like a dead spider to prevent your opponent from being able to pull a lever free. We talked about the importance of grips and how they dictate position, uh, how important it is to win the grip fight, and how whoever wins that grip fight is probably going to wind up dictating the position and the, um, the, the pace of the fight. And we talked about grip inversion. So when someone does grip you, the importance of inverting control of that grip so that it becomes a dominant grip for, for you, because as per the order of operations, you can't really advance position or achieve your goals if your opponent has dominant grips against you. That's right. And and overall, you know, even if you do lose the range battle and now your opponent is like flattening you out in your in your half guard or whatever, denying your opponent from any position access to the ends of your levers. So, you know, if they grab your wrist and they pin it to the ground, now that grip becomes a, a load-bearing grip. Like it, they can put their weight on that grip. Mm-hmm. It takes it literally costs them no energy to pin your wrist to the ground, and they can start looking for a two-on-one like a Kimura. Yeah. So just denying your opponent the ability to control the end of the lever is going to pay off big time later, uh, just because now they can't control that portion of your body. Right, right. And, and again, um, just to recap, a, a huge thank you to everyone for the, the overwhelmingly positive support. I'm, I'm really humbled that people are appreciating and finding this useful. Um, as you saw here in this episode, we did do some Q&A. So please do send us any questions you have or any topics you'd like us to discuss. We're always looking for things to bring up in future episodes. If there's anything in particular you'd like to ask us about, uh, we'll, even if we don't know the answer, we'll try to find it for you. So please do be engaged. Please do let us know how we can make this better and, and contribute in any way we can. We hope this has been useful. 
Yeah, it's been it's been a really great experience, and uh, let's just keep it going, guys. Keep the questions coming. Thank you so much for your support, and uh, we hope you enjoyed. Please share this. Thank you. Thank you very much.